Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. I'm going to read briefly from Nehemiah chapter 6. Verses 9 through 16, just this little portion here in the middle of chapter 6. Nehemiah is a servant of the great emperor in the Persian Empire. In fact, he's not low on the totem pole. He's the cupbearer, which in our modern English language would mean chief of security. He's the personal bodyguard. The cupbearer isn't the fancy role of carrying the cup to the king. He's the guy who stands between assassins and the king. He's actually the head of security. He's an incredibly wealthy, powerful, and important man. And he sets aside all of that to be a servant in Jerusalem, to build up the beauty and glory of the church. And there he is beset by many trials. We'll read of one this morning. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. For they were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I, who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sinballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sinballat according to their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in the 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by God. Amen. Nehemiah is under attack by his enemies who want to make him afraid. They want to discourage him through fear so that he'll stop the work of building up the walls around Jerusalem. They make in this chapter three assaults that will fill him with fear. But each time Nehemiah answers the temptation with fear with prayer. And he cries out to God for strength in verse 9. He cries out to God for remembrance in verse 14. Having prayerfully drawn his strength from the presence of God, Nehemiah is able through his fear to persist in the work. Till at last, even his enemies must conclude in verse 16. God has done this. 
Notice, friends, that it is not Nehemiah who's celebrated by the enemies. They don't come to the conclusion, oh, you know what? Nehemiah's strength and wisdom, he, he was just too good for us. The enemies recognize through the humble, prayerful life of Nehemiah that it was not his power, but God's that built the wall. With this in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 20. Our sermon text this morning is from Acts chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Paul here is coming to the very end of his third missionary journey, most of which he has spent in Ephesus. He's going to return to Jerusalem, and he has very low expectations for what will become of him. He dreams his plan is to go to Jerusalem in order to catch a ship to Rome. But he is realistic and recognizes that his days are running out. With death hanging over his head, Paul takes up this journey that we will read about now. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Here again, the word of the Lord. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so Pater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them in, at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And sinking into a deep sleep, he was overcome. I'm sorry, I missed a line. And in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, and sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tragilium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that we would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Amen and amen.
Have you this week been keeping count? I have. And by Monday night, I was sick of death. Last Lord's Day, we were asked to pray for a family whose wife and mother passed away, leaving numerous small children behind. Monday morning, I went to my study, just up here behind us. I sat down to prepare my sermon, and I got a phone call from a friend. His daughter's friend had committed suicide. By Monday midday, we learned of Sidoni Chin's passing. By Monday afternoon, I heard from a friend in New York, his father-in-law had contracted COVID and died. Monday evening, I was sitting at home when I received word from a seminary acquaintance. His wife went into labor with triplets. Two of them died. By the time I went to bed on Monday night, I was sick of death. And yet, in God's grace, my friends, I had spent Monday in my study looking at this text. With one hand, Christ was giving to me report after report, death, death, death. And yet, with the other hand, Christ was sitting there handing me Acts chapter 20. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. Indeed, throughout this week, we have had two more reports of loved ones and friends who have passed. The number is high. We live in a world of death. We live in a world where loved ones die. We live in a world where we die. And we need Acts chapter 20, which holds out for us this morning this truth, this comfort, this good news. Jesus raises the dead. Because that is true, my friends, you and I should and can cultivate courage in this life. My friends, Jesus raises the dead. So let us cultivate courage. Let us not be afraid, but trust our Christ. With this in mind, notice that Paul is ready to bring his third missionary journey to an end. He's ready to make the transition according to the plan he had conceived in the Holy Spirit in Ephesus. Do you remember in chapter 19? He had in the Spirit formulated a plan by which he would journey through Macedonia down into Greece, strengthening and encouraging the churches. There from Corinth, he would catch a ship to Jerusalem, which would allow him to catch a ship to Rome, and he would advance into the new mission field of Western Europe, Spain specifically. Paul had dreamt of this plan. Paul had prepared this plan. And at last, in verse 1, when the violent riot in Ephesus ceased, Paul gathered to himself the disciples of Ephesus in verse 1. He embraced them. He prayed for them. And he departed from them. He gave them a proper farewell. Saying goodbye, I trust I will never see you again. Off I go to my next adventure. Then Paul in in verse 2 begins on this great plan that he had conceived in the spirit. He goes through Macedonia. And there he visits the saints and he strengthens them in Christ. He prays for them. 
He preaches to them. He builds them up with many words so that they are left refreshed by his farewell. Then he comes to Greece, Corinth, the southern tip, and he spends three months blessing them in the name of Jesus, praying for them, nourishing them, encouraging them, bidding them farewell. But somewhere along the way in verse 3, Paul discovers that his plan to sail to Syria will result in his death. The Jews somehow have discovered the ship on which he is to sail and have planted assassins deep in the bowels of the boat. If he sails to Syria according to plan, he will be murdered and dumped into the Mediterranean Sea. Paul has to retreat. Paul has to change his plan. This grand farewell tour in which he hits all his favorite stops has come to the penultimate place, but it cannot finish. Paul has to retrace his steps, losing precious time, losing valuable days that he had hoped to spend, totally uprooting this plan that he had conceived. How many of you Love driving through Boston only to find that your road is shut and you have to go back the way you came and find a different route. Isn't that your favorite part about driving through Boston? Paul has to go back the way he came. He has to retrace all his steps and find a different boat from a different port. It's a frustrating detour. It's a massive delay in his plan. And it's overshadowed by the fact that it is a murderous attempt that has rerouted him, overshadowed by death, rerouted and detoured, Paul has to embrace this discomforting providence with patience and with cheer. My friends, we're in the same place, are we not? How many of you dreamed of spending a year and a half behind a mask? How many of you were eager to see your pastor preach for a hundred Lord's Days behind plexiglass? seeing the reflection of stained glass more than you see him? How many of you yearn to sit at home with the live stream? Truly, this is a detour. Truly, this is not the road we wanted to walk. How many of you look at your marriage and say, boy, I thought this was going to be different. How many of you look at your kids and say, I thought they were going to be something else? How many of you recognize we're retracing our steps and saying, this isn't the road I thought Jesus had me on? How many of you look at your job, look at your church, look at your pastor, look at your life and ministry and say, this is a hard providence. This isn't the road I expected Christ to take me down. This isn't where I thought he would have me. How do we cultivate courage when life constantly goes wrong? How do we endure hard providences with cheer and patience and gentleness? My friends, Jesus has given you generously two gifts to aid in this process. He's given you two tools which build up in you a heart of courage to face the greatest disappointments, the most discouraging detours, And even death itself. The first is friendship. Notice that Paul, as he retreats and turns around, he does not go alone. 
In verse 4, we are told that Sopater of Berea is with him. Also, Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonia, of Thessalonica. I did that in every single effort. I read it wrong. Thessalonica. Gaius and Derby, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Notice there are seven of them. A full cohort. This is a full minivan. You would need a Honda Odyssey to fit all of these in. You would need a Toyota Sienna. You would need a Chevy Suburban. This is the full cohort. He's not traveling light. He has surrounded him with a company, a fellowship, if I can use Tolkien's word. He has brought to his presence and to his person those who would live for him and more importantly, those who would die for him. Those friends who will provide him night by night on the discouraging road, cheer and comfort with their stories and their jokes. Around the campfire, along the dusty road, these are seven men who will lift his spirits and indeed scare away the phantoms of the night that fill his mind. We need friends. And we need friends of good company. Friends of laughter and of stories. Friends of sweet fellowship. We need friends like this. Men and women who travel in company with us on this road of discouragement and disappointment. Notice also, though, not only does he have a multitude of friends, seven in total, their diversity. One is from Derbe. One is from Berea. One is from, two are from Thessalonica. Three are from Asia. He does well, surrounding himself not only with a multitude of friends, but with a bunch of friends who are kind of not like him. Friends who are from a diverse range of places. Friends who had very different Christian experiences. Do you remember him coming to Berea? He was well received and the church was quickly and peaceably established. Do you remember him going to Thessalonica? Not so much. That was a hard plant. My friends, we must have friends. Friends of diversity and difference. Friends who are not wholly like-minded but wholly like-hearted. Friends who are united to us in the one great truth, our love of Christ. It's okay that you have friends who are Yankees fans. It is. Because we are all Christ's followers. And that is the source of our union and our peace. We need such friends as these. For even as Frodo found, there are many powers in this world But in Middle-earth, there was no power greater, more powerful or potent than Samwise Gamgee's friendship. Nothing broke that affection. And indeed, the world was saved through it. Jesus came into the world and he said to his disciples, I am your friend. And no greater love has anyone than he who lays down his life for his friends. We need this company of companionship, friendship full of affection. This is how we survive and endure with courage, with cheer, and with hope when we are constantly delayed and detoured, and even when death itself is hanging round. We have a fellowship of believers. We have a communion of saints. And it is in this presence, with these people at our side, 
we are able to endure all things. But this is not the only tool Christ has given. No, we see in the following verses, he has given to this company of friendship, worship, public worship. Notice in verse 6, that the men having been sent on the head to Troas have prepared for Paul a soft landing. They come together once more, are reunited in Troas, where they will spend six days. There is perhaps two or three purposes to this. First, maybe they need a little rest. The road up through Macedonia is long and difficult. They need to recover their strength before they cross over. But also, perhaps they need a little bit of time to say farewell. It's kind of hard to say goodbye sometimes, isn't it? And you want to spend a little while enjoying the company. But thirdly, and most significantly as we see in verse 7, they wanted to worship together. This is the hallmark of Christian communion. This is the apex of our friendship. As much as we love doing so many things together, we love to talk, we love to drink coffee, we love to ride bikes, some of us. We love to do all these things together, but above all else, we love to worship together. We love to sing praise to God, offer prayers, and hear His Word. And so it is on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, the day that commemorates and memorializes the resurrection from the dead. On that day, the disciples gather to break bread, to have the Lord's Supper, to commemorate and to memorialize the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the day of resurrection, they gather around the table of resurrection. And Paul, for the last time, takes his place in the pulpit. There in that upper room at Troas, he begins to preach. And he preaches. And he preaches. And he preaches. And you thought your Reformed Presbyterian pastor was long-winded. This man preaches right on until midnight. Now, one, there are no clocks. So once the, t- once the sun goes down, you don't have a way to tell. It's just dark. And into the deepening dark, Paul continues to preach. And no one is going home. Why do they linger? Why do they stay? Why does Paul continue to preach? Because they love worship. Because they hang on the words of life with joy, with affection, with attention. They linger long in the worship of God, knowing that it is in this hour that the words of life are given to them. Knowing that it is in this moment that the bread of life is served to them. That the cup of life is drained down their throats. They know that it is in this hour that the fullness of the saints comes together. And that communion expresses their union with Christ. And the means of grace are served in abundance and joy. They linger long. They are not eager to go. They're like that avid reader who reaches the final chapter of the book they love. Have you ever held a beloved book? And you know how you're reading chapter after chapter? You can't wait to see how it ends. And you get to the last couple pages and what happens? You slow way down. And all of a sudden you're reading every word 
hoping it doesn't end. Reading every line, reading every page, slowly, slowly. No, don't let it stop. Don't let it stop. Because you love the story you read. In the same way, they come to worship. And though midnight rolls on, they say, what's the clock? What's time? Who needs sleep when we can have worship? Who needs a bed when we can have the table of the Lord? And they linger long in the worship of God. This is what their hearts desire. The sweetness of the Savior served in all the means of grace. Let us pray. Let us preach. Let us read. Let us eat. Let us drink. Let us bathe our souls in the grace of God. These are the good things of life that give us comfort and courage. Our friendship and fellowship comes into its own when it comes into worship. How do we bear hard providences? How do we deal with delays and detours? How do we face the encroach of death courageously in worship? Persistence in worship. Lingering in worship. Not hastening through worship. I focused here on public worship because that's what's happening in our text. But for application's sake, let's turn to our own lives. My friends... Do you glance at a few pages before bed? Or do you linger with Christ in the word? Do you throw up a few words in your heart and mind at the dawn? And say, oh, that's prayer. Or do you, like Jacob, wrestle with God? And strive in the spirit to say, I will not let you go until you bless me. Do you linger in worship? Do you find that the discipline of partaking of the grace of God through the means of grace is in fact sweet and refreshing to your soul? We need this friendship and we need this worship. For by these two means, Christ awakens courage within us. But then we have the very, very heart of our message. Did you notice in this text... The story begins with Paul on his journey, and it's kind of like, you know, little details that you wonder if they're important. And then at the end of the story, Paul's on the journey, and you wonder if the details are important. And then for some reason, Luke decides to spend 90% of the ink and page available to him on one event after midnight in Troas. We're talking about weeks of travel here. We're talking about months of travel here. And Luke spends 80% of his space on one hour in Troas in the middle of the night. Something very important is happening here. See, Paul is in this upper room on the third story. It's probably the fourth floor because it's probably ground floor, first floor, second floor, third floor. So third floor is fourth floor. By the way, we count floors. Some 40 or 50 feet up. Didn't know the Romans had apartment buildings, did you? As long as there's been cities, there's been apartments. And there, Paul is preaching and preaching and preaching. The candles are burning low. You guys don't get to enjoy that. You flip on the light switches and they stay as bright as they ever stay. But in the worship service, they can watch how long Paul has been going by how small the candlestick is getting. 
And as the wax is disappearing and the flame is drawing down, it begins to spark and to sputter. And all at once, Paul's voice, so clearly holding out the good news of Jesus, speaking again and again, the whole counsel of God is ringed by the atmosphere and hum of crackling little flames. And all those flames are licking up the oxygen in the room and filling it with carbon dioxide. And you thought your masks were suffocating. The room grows warm. And Eutychus grows drowsy. He moves over to the window to get some fresh air. He sits on the sill. And Paul goes on. The night is deep and dark. And so is his sleep. As his eyes droop, his head falls to his chest. And in one horrific moment, consciousness departs, his muscles relax, and he flops back. Down through the starlit night he falls. Passing through wind, he awakens to his horror, and then nothing. Everyone upstairs with a gasp, listen into the silence for the sickening thud as his body strikes the perfect pavement of the Roman engineers below. He is dead. This is what Luke decides to focus on. This is the very heart of our text. Paul preaches a young man right out the window and to his death. Why does Luke think this is so important? Paul, with all the crowd, very likely, throws the door of the apartment open. They run down the hall to the staircase. Down the stairs they go, probably jumping and skipping two or three steps at a time. The crowd spills out into the street, seeing the inevitable blood and gore, the mangled and damaged body, and there is no breath, no heartbeat. But not Paul. He doesn't stop to gawk. He doesn't stare at the horrible scene before him. With haste, he races up, falls headlong flat on him, and hugs him tight. And says, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. He's alive. Why would Paul do this crazy thing? Who runs up to a bleeding cadaver in broken bones and gives it a big hug? Well, Elijah, in 2 Kings 17, he did. And Jesus, most of all, Jesus. In this dramatic act, the Apostle Paul vividly displays the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, who came to earth and took flesh and blood and bone just like yours. Why? So that he could lay in a grave just like yours. So that he could embrace your dead body and breathe life into it. Because you see, my friends, in that very moment when the soul of Eutychus departed from the body, the body of Eutychus did not depart from its union with Christ. That is the extraordinary truth we find in the Shorter Catechism. 
that when we die and our souls are separated from our bodies, our bodies are not separated from Jesus. Still united to Christ, though not united to us. Have you ever considered that your union with Christ is stronger than the union your soul has with its body? Your soul will be severed from your body when you die. It will not be severed from Christ. Your bodies, still united to Christ, will lie in the grave, awaiting the resurrection. This is the incredible comfort at the heart of our fellowship. What is that singular truth around which we gather as friends? The fact that this human being that you have in your life will never, ever be separated from you in Christ. The fact that this body that you must shed in death is bound up in Christ and cannot be lost. When Jesus comes to earth and he takes our dead bodies into his arms, he says to us, do not be troubled. There is life in him. I remember standing in a viewing for a deceased friend. As we walked into the room and all the mourners are there telling stories and crying. The deceased mother's mother came to Lyd and to me grabbed us by the hand and said, Come, let me show you. He's not here. He has risen. She longed for us to grasp the reality of the resurrection. This is what our fellowship is for. This is what our worship service is for. To bring us into the reality of the resurrection. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Though death awaits you, it is a death that is dead. It is a death that is defeated. There is an everlasting life for you in Christ Jesus. That when your body, broken and defeated, lies in the grave, Jesus turns to death and says, Nope, that one's mine. You cannot have it. Your body belongs to Him. With this in mind, with the extraordinary reality of the resurrection vividly displayed to them in the raising of Eutychus, they then go back upstairs. I mean, how bizarre is that? No hospital, no ER, no call the doctor. You know what? It's kind of late. It's past midnight. We just raised a guy from the dead. You know what we should do? We should go have the Lord's Supper. Verse 11. Now when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while even till daybreak, he departed. Oh, my friends, once we have grasped the reality of the resurrection, we are ready for the Lord's Supper. We are ready to recognize that this bread that you eat and this cup that you drink is a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. It is a foretaste of the heavenly humanity to which you are united in Christ Jesus because his body cannot be found in any grave. His body is in heaven. It's not here on the table. It is in heaven. And we by faith through the power of his spirit ascend when we come to this table. We do not eat among the pits. 
in desperate places of this world. No, in the presence of our enemies, he sets us a table that is a heavenly feast. And up they go to feast. My friends, in a few moments, we will go up and we will feast. We will ascend not to the third story, but to the third heaven, where in the faith of Jesus Christ, we will enter into the realms of glory and by faith partake with Christ. This is what it is to eat and drink of the Lord's Supper. It is to partake of the resurrection that is to come. It is to taste and know our union with Christ. And so, for good reason, they linger on till daybreak. Who needs sleep when you have the resurrection from the dead? Who needs sleep when you have a fellowship, a company of resurrection? We are not the fellowship of the ring. We are the fellowship of the resurrection. Friendship rooted in everlasting life. Companionship rooted in union with Christ. We are a worshiping body celebrating and now partaking of the reality that is to come. This is how we bear our hard providences. Knowing this sweet, affectionate, well-fed fellowship is rooted in the resurrection. Knowing that there is everlasting life for us. Having so been nourished, Paul makes, or sorry, Luke makes this extraordinary understatement in verse 12. They were not a little comforted. Oh, there's such good comfort here. Are you not comforted? The reality of the resurrection. There's no detour that puts off eternal life. There's no retreat from the glory that is awaiting us. There is a day approaching when we shall rise again in flesh and dwell with Christ forever. This is not a small comfort. This is a great comfort. The greatest of all comforts. Here we cultivate courage for this life. A friendship in the resurrection. A worship that points us to the resurrection. A Lord's Supper in which we taste the resurrection. Having rooted themselves in the reality of the resurrection, they are ready to say goodbye. And they depart. Paul, with Luke and his fellow friends, head off for the ship. And they sail that route that Paul had intentionally tried to avoid. This isn't the way he wanted to go. Asos, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, Tregillium, Miletus. It's like taking the purple line down to Rhode Island instead of the Amtrak. I'm the only one in the room that knows what that means? Oh, okay, good. So Amtrak costs you a few more dollars, but it skips a whole lot of stops. The purple line will save you a few bucks, but you're going to stop at every little town between here and Providence, Rhode Island. This is what happens. He doesn't get the Amtrak straight to Jerusalem out of Corinth that he had hoped to have in verse 1. No, he's stuck doing the little puddle jumper along the coast of Asia, which is costing him valuable time, which he had not wanted to do. But he can do it with cheer. He can do it with the inevitability of death hanging over his head. He can take this detour. He can handle this delay. 
Because he's rooted in the reality of the resurrection. Because he knows what's a few more stops on the road to glory. What's a few more small towns in this world when I know the world that is coming? What's a few more sorrows? What's a few more tears? It's okay. I know the reality of the resurrection. He sets with purpose his goal before him. And he says, there I am going and there I will arrive in due course. With a confident courage in his heart, Paul advances, notice verse 16, hurrying to Jerusalem to be there by Pentecost. Paul has a date with death and he means not to be late. Paul knows he is walking steadily to the grave we call Jerusalem. And in this way, Paul holds out for us, through the skillful pen of Luke, a mirror image of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Luke chapter 9, verse 51? You know all those scripture memory passages you're doing, right? Have you guys memorized Luke 9, 51? And Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was resolved. To the cross I will go. He was not afraid of death. Because according to Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he despised the cross and its shame. He endured it willingly. Where do you find the quiet courage to persist through every detour and delay? Where do you find that quiet courage that stares death in the face and lingers long under the shadow of the grave? You find it in worship. You find it in friendship. Most of all, you find it in that worship and friendship that points you to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus set his face as flint. He steeled his resolve. He was convinced to the cross I will go and I will not be afraid. Paul, in like manner, hurries to Jerusalem. He hastens to that date with destiny. He is not afraid. Dear friends, have you come face to face with the reality of the resurrection? Have you owned and possessed deep in your soul that extraordinary confidence in Christ? Though he slay me, says Job, I will trust him. How is this so? Because Job also says, when my flesh wastes away, I will see God. In the hope of the resurrection, you can accommodate hard providence. You can endure horrific delays and even death itself. My friends, build up that fellowship of friendship. Be faithful in worship and there drink in the reality of the resurrection and so cultivate courage that you might stand fast in the day of despair and death. Beloved, Jesus raises the dead. Let's cultivate courage together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come to you, a weak and weary people, knowing the death is at work in our bodies. 
knowing that death has claimed our loved ones. Knowing that death is before us, the inevitable end of this story. And yet, Father, we have this day a fresh hope, a renewed strength. Death is indeed not the end of our story. We have a Christ who raises the dead. We have a Jesus who embraces our bodies in death, who preserves our union with him through every trial, through every trouble, and through death itself. We give you thanks for these wonderful hopes. We give you thanks for this great Christ. And pray now that as we come to the supper, we would eat and drink and taste and see that these things are true, that we would believe and be persuaded our Jesus lives. And in him, though we die, we shall live forever. We give you thanks for this wonderful hope, which we confess together in Jesus' name. Amen.